Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Good Tech Fest podcast. My name is Andrew Means. Today's episode comes to us from an earlier Good Tech Fest event where I sat down with Greg Baldwin to discuss funding impact technologies and digital transformation. But before we begin, let's hear a quick word from our sponsor. This season of the Good Tech Fest podcast is sponsored by Okta for Good. Every day, millions of people trust Okta to help them safely access the technology they need to work, play, volunteer, shop, you name it. How does Okta do it? Magic. Just kidding. They hired tons of really smart, dedicated people who spent the last 13 years building the world's best identity platform, which is now used by thousands of organizations around the world. Okta solves all identity use cases. Whether you're trying to enable your team to safely work from anywhere, spend less time onboarding and offboarding users, or taking the friction out of your new consumer app, Okta's got you covered. Okta for Good is Okta's social impact initiative, strengthening the connections between people, technology, and communities. Okta for Good is also a proud sponsor of Volunteer Match, the organization founded and led by this episode's guest. To learn more about Okta, visit okta.com. That's O-K-T-A dot com. So thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Andrew. Always nice to be invited. Absolutely. So I'd love for you to just talk a little bit about the story of Volunteer Match um, and give us a little bit of history. Like what motivated you to found the organization um, and what was it like, especially in those kind of early days being such uh, a young and early kind of nonprofit in the technology space? Sure. I think, um, I mean, it's, it's hard to even rewind the tape far enough and uh, I will definitely date myself. Um, but um, I remember um, volunteer match for me, I started as a volunteer uh, back in 1998 in the dawn of the internets um, and was really just fascinated by, um, you know, the potential for the internet to, uh, you know, to, you know, what it could do. And honestly, at the beginning, when my first experience with the internet was um, um, trying to hook up my Apple IIe, I think, to the internet on a uh, 26.6 modem, you know, in my bedroom in Boston, uh, kind of my, my first effort where I couldn't load up my PPP protocols and I didn't even know what a TCP, like I was just so lost. It was so early. And then once I got the thing all fired up, I was like, now what do I do? And I went to like, Yahoo or Netscape, I guess it was at the time. And like, I, I literally didn't know what to do. And I downloaded a picture of, uh, you know, Vincent Van Gogh's Starry Starry Night from the Louvre. And I stared at it and I was like, I don't know what the big deal is. <laughs> like, I guess I can't go to the Louvre. So uh, when the idea of Volunteer Match came around, a friend of mine who I'd went, gone to school with basically said, hey, I'm thinking about trying to build this website. Um, that would make it easier for people to find local volunteer opportunities. It really resonated with me on a personal level because volunteering um, had been a real part of my life growing up. I'd grown up in upstate New York. My dad was, dad was in the Rotary Club. So, you know, lots of pancake breakfasts. My mom was a teacher and worked at the library as a volunteer. So it was really part of my, my life. But by the time I was living in Boston, I'd sort of lost connection to all the groups I'd been a part of. And so for me, volunteer match at the beginning was like, solving my own problem, which I suppose is, you know, how a lot of technologies get built. It's like, well, how would I even begin to find out about volunteer opportunities in Boston at the time in 1998? Like the phone book, like, you know, if you're not already in the club, it's hard to get connected. 
And so that was the inspiration for Volunteer Match um, back in the day um, for me. Um, I think for others it had a, you know, my, my friend Jay Backstrand was working at Sun Microsystems and was coming at it from a kind of a West Coast. Um, he had been part of an initiative called Net Day 96, which had wired the California school systems with ethernet cable, all volunteer based. And they had built a little contraption to kind of coordinate that. Um, and you put those two ideas together um, and Volunteer Match was launched in the spring of 1998 as a way to make it easier for people to find local volunteer opportunities, not particularly complicated as an idea. All the complexity is, you know, how do you scale it? How do you pay for it? How do you do it well? Um, how do you, you know, how, how do you um, keep up with the competition and all that other stuff? So that's kind of, that's the original history. Yeah. So I, As I, I tell it, by the way, there's yeah. different versions of that, but. <laughs> that's the, the Greg Baldwin version. This is the Greg Baldwin. Um, which, which I think is a great transition to the next question, which is really what have been some of the kind of major chapters of volunteer matches history? I mean, it's, yeah. it is, it's, I mean, 23 yeah. year old organization and you've had different kind of evolutions throughout the, the organization's history. Um, yeah, so what have sure. been those kind of chapters? So I think chapter one was, um, the first chapter was, can you actually build something that works? And then, you know, put it online um, and not have it break and have other people use it and even just understand what's going on. So like the hardest part about volunteer match phase one is that it's a classic chicken and the egg marketplace problem. You simultaneously need to have a whole bunch of, you know, interested volunteers looking for opportunities um, and then a whole bunch of nonprofit organizations publishing opportunities. And so I'd call phase one the lying and faking till you make it phase where for years we were just like, yeah, of course, they, you know, there's thousands of people looking for volunteer opportunities. And we tell that to the nonprofits and then, and, uh, you know, and to the volunteers, we were, you know, saying, oh yeah, it was great things. And we had to really focus people's attention on the areas where there was content and opportunities, as opposed to people just doing random searches all across America where there wasn't any content. So that was phase one. Phase two, I think, um, once we kind of had established it, we kind of anchored our original strategy. We were going to launch by cities. So one city at a time, we started with New York. And as soon as we had, I think, you know, 20 participating nonprofits, you know, we would use that and we'd have a launch event, like great news, you know, volunteer match Los Angeles. And then um, in the summer of maybe 2000 or something like that, pretty early on, um, we noticed that there was an opportunity that started showing up in every zip code. Um, in, the, in the Northeast. And we discovered that there was a nonprofit who had hired a summer intern to put the same volunteer opportunity, to publish the same volunteer opportunity in every zip code in the Northeast. And they were literally going 000010002. And they would, and so by the time we caught them, they, you know, they, they, this intern had been working for like a couple of weeks and everything like Maine through New Hampshire was all just one opportunity. And, but we turned the problem into, you know, into a, you know, we, we tried to make lemonade out of it, but we called this, these folks up and we created at the time what was called a multi-zip listing. We're like, look, we'll just publish it once so it does not, doesn't look like spam. It'll show up in all these places, but you won't have to type it in. And they felt like that was a win. And that allowed us to go national because we had at least one opportunity in every zip code in America. And it was this one opportunity. And they were actually, they were recruiting for host families to host foreign exchange students to go to, you know, live with your family and go to high school. So it really was an opportunity that could be done absolutely anywhere. And we added a couple more to the portfolio and that went from city-based to national. And then 
we figured out how SEO worked probably in the early 2000s. And then we went from kind of a, you know, a lonely place on the web to figuring out how Google, you know, really worked as an SEO system. And that launched us, you know, that basically that, 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 that really anchored maybe the only smart thing that we've ever really done at Volunteer Match besides, you know, launching it was figuring out SEO back in the day. And that gave us a, you know, a first mover advantage that just kept compounding itself. And I say the, the, the phase that we're in now, um, and then we have the economic phase, which is like, how do you pay for all this? That's where we really built tools for the corporate space and kind of created different versions of the system that catered to the, you know, kind of the private label version um, of the volunteer match system for corporations. And that was a really strong period for about a decade. And that really came to an end about five years ago, really. I mean, mostly, you know, in the time that um, I think we've gotten to know each other where that business was just getting increasingly commercialized by players that had 100x the budgets that we had and could do a lot more than just volunteering. So in our space, it was, you know, corporations that had, you know, been using Volunteer Match for a decade, um, increasingly were under pressure to find a solution that allowed them to do volunteering, giving, grant making all in one solution, enter the, you know, the big ticket um, players that now operate in the corporate space, like the Benevides and, you know, the Salesforces, um, uh, Blackbods, um, Cyber Grants, et cetera. And it was at that moment that Volunteer Match really, the biggest pivot that I've been a part of is how do you operate in a super commercial, how do you, op what's our unique competitive event? What, what value are we adding into that space that nobody else can add? Um, and that's really been the pivot. We've been moving away from trying to build products and services that compete on a feature by feature basis against people that have, you know, 10 times, 100 times, 1000 times more money, and start to focus in on how do we become a player in that ecosystem that can deliver value that the other players can't. Um, and you, as you know, our kind of our secret sauce and our, our solution was to think about ourselves less as a, you know, a standalone product and more as an infrastructure player that has access to all of these nonprofits and the relationships and these opportunities to volunteer and making that information available as a subscription service um, through uh, our API suite to a bunch of folks that had formerly been competitors that we kind of turned into collaborators and partners. And that's been, as you know, that's been a huge pivot um, where there weren't a lot of like, you know, there weren't a lot of examples or ground rules um, other than, you know, kind of the, 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 those classic strategic questions. What can you do that no one else can do? Um, how do you make that available um, in the marketplace to, um, you know, in a way that others can take advantage of? Um, and, you know, I think that's forced us into a world of collaboration and API product development that is completely new for the organization and is, um, you know, has, has opened up a whole new set of possibilities for scale and growth. Um, not because we were geniuses, but because we were basically, you know, what is it? Necessity is the mother of invention. If we hadn't done that, it's pretty easy to believe that Volunteer Match would have been, you know, a glorious, you know, thank you very much. Good night, San Francisco, you know, and retire under the weight of some of these really big competitors. Yeah, obviously, you know, I've been journeying with you as, as Volunteer Match has undergone that transition to much more of an infrastructure organization um, yeah. and providing, you know, like a, becoming a data organization, really providing yeah. data to some of those larger players. Uh, but I, before we kind of talk more about that kind of transition, I'd love to just kind of do one more reflective question 
Um, you know, you've, you've been in kind of the nonprofit technology space since about the beginning of the nonprofit technology space. Um, how have you seen that evolve? How have you seen like investment in technology shift uh, in the nonprofit sector kind of at large um, over the last, you know, 20, 25 years? And it's has a great, it been? I mean, it's a written, no, it's a, gr a great question. And I think there's so many things have changed and yet, you know, so many things have, have, you, know, you kind of, also, you see some of the same themes. Um, I, I suppose at some level, there's there's something going on here that's a little bit like a fractal. You know, mm -hmm. you see a bunch of change, but it all kind of follows the same pattern. I will say though, the biggest change, or at least this is the change that has occurred in me. When the internet started, it was a wild goose chase of, you know, of everything, you know, and I remember we won some Webby award in like 2001, you know, and, um, you know, Sergey Brin and, um, um, you know, rolled in on rollerblades. And it was pretty much just Burning Man, but in downtown San Francisco, right? You know, it was all these wild, like guys dressed as, you know, Peter Pan and all these just random websites. It, like the web was just a, a, an explosion of diversity. Um, and the nonprofit sector was central and, you know, was well looked after in that ecosystem. It was all, we're, you know, raging against the establishment and finally we'll all have a voice you know, in, in a communication system that is a two-way communication system. We don't have to just all be couch potatoes. And, you know, the revolution and the utopia was 100% on in 2001. And, and I think at that moment, yeah, you know. <laughs> it just, pardon? And then it became the establishment, you know? Like, well, and, and then it went Orwellian and it was a complete yeah. animal farm, you know, four legs good, two legs bad, and then four legs good, two legs better, where that diversity has collapsed back in, in on itself um, into you know a handful of organizations that are basically calling all the shots um, because they kind of they're you know most of us are just renting space on their infrastructure to do anything on the web so that like that that was a profound transformation that I will honestly admit I never saw coming and got you know taken for a ride with the rest of the utopianists being like isn't this awesome what could go wrong right. Everybody's got a voice, you know, independence, liberty, justice, um, equity, inclusion. It was all, it was all just kind of built into the framework of the web at, at, in the beginning. Um, obviously all of that has changed. So I think now, um, you know, what's, what's unique about this next generation are the, those of us who have either, you know, lost that vision or, you know, were, grew up, you know, were raised, you know, in the period of consolidation after the glorious early, <laughs> early days. Um, I think now there's a growing awareness that, um, and honestly, for the a stronger and more growing awareness now than maybe you know that has ever been, that you can't take um, the 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 technology itself will be driven by incentives and people, and you know you have to take advantage of the technology. To achieve the outcomes you want to see, that the technology itself doesn't have some natural destiny to be glorious and virtuous on its own. Um, and I think at the beginning, I, I kind of believed that that the technology was so powerful that you couldn't it couldn't help but make the world a better place. But by the time Mark Zuckerberg co-opted that idea, <laughs> and then you know we had to run through the period where you know there was a, the, maybe the toughest times at Volunteer Match were the times when people would just be like. Why do we need volunteer match? Like, isn't Facebook just going to take care of all of that stuff for humanity and society and make the world a better place? So seeing that you know, 
seeing the dangers of um, kind of the commercialization of technology that there is this an irresistible pull for it to be drawn to not you know glory and virtue and goodwill and you know community and 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 the public good it is driven ultimately and optimized I, I i'm i'm coming up with a new label you'll like this the iron law of optimization that all technology systems can be understood by understanding who's paying the bills and ultimately um, systems become optimized in order to advance the interests of those who are paying the bills and every other you know everything else just becomes a, like an inefficiency in the, in the system and i think you know you get you get a new awareness of how important communities like good tech fest and people like the people who work in public interest technology um, who are still working in the nonprofit sector or who are a part of a B Corps, um, who are real still intentionally working to unlock and apply new technologies to solve non-commercial problems in our society. You know, the food banks, um, you know, churches, um, big brothers and big sisters, um, you know, home, these are not commercially, you know, viable. These are problems that are not solved exclusively through commercial transactions and they need other policy and technology interventions and that's um i think that's a lot that's understood much better today it was taken for granted at the beginning it turned out to be you know a big mistake and uh, I, i'm actually really pleased to see how many people now are really committed to um intentionally um carving out more space for the public good on the web today and not just expecting that it will naturally happen. Yeah, I know that's one of the areas that you're in particular very passionate and interested in is this kind of like public interest technology and, and, and a, really an internet for public interest. Yeah. Um, what are some of the things that you're seeing today that give you hope that that you know, momentum is, is actually occurring, that there's actually progress being made? Because I, I agree, right? Like, and I think this is the, the cycle that so much of technology goes through, right? new yeah. technology enters the internet social media now blockchain whatever it might be yeah, yeah. and we're like it will solve the technology is yeah. so powerful it will solve these problems and yeah. then you realize nope it just is co-opted by another system um, yeah. and has its own problems and unless we intentionally go about carving out spaces for the public interest um, it's easy for those interests to be co-opted you know commercially and yeah. um, so how what are you seeing today uh, around progress towards um, really carving out space in the digital world and the digital economy um, for kind of public interest technology. Yeah, I think there's a couple of bright spots and some of them might seem counterintuitive. Um, I, I, I really, one of the problems that we have, we have observed is too often, you know, nonprofits or those serving in the nonprofit space um, are expected to, you know, are, are, are treated not as customers of technologies, but you know, like as beneficiaries or something of that nature. And they end up with tools and technology that um, they don't have to pay for. Um, and you know, it's, it, they're just expected to use it free. And I think you know, good examples are like Facebook. And, and um, you know, the knowledge increasing, the, the growing awareness that um, you know, if you're not paying for a product, you are the product that you know, I think has become you know, part of the, you know, this generation's understanding of how you get sucked, sucked into the, you know, into the Borg and, and never get out, um, that, um, that that's an important realization 
that I think will serve the public interests well moving forward, you know, understanding the risks. Um, on top of that, I think more and more, you know, B Corps, for-profit companies, um, you know, even the, you know, the sales forces and the Microsoft are increasingly making investments to serve the nonprofit sector, not as a byproduct of some other business, but to build better tools and technologies that are aimed at solving the problems of the, the nonprofit sector, not as a, hey, you know, why don't you just use our commercial sector technology and it'll be fine, but intentionally designing it around the needs and the interests. Um, I think that's actually very positive, even though some people are like, oh my God, now you got to pay money. And I'm like, yeah, well, good. Because if you're paying money, then chances are that the, the, the system will be built to advance the interests of that customer um, and yeah. not get thrown under the bus by some other customer that's able to pay more money. So I actually think that's a, a good thing, more mm -hmm. discipline about the economics. And then the last thing I think finally, although it's still a long ways off, um, I see, I see the public policy at a national level starting to at least um, take an interest in how important it is that the next generation you know, of Americans and people around the world, honestly, have tools and technology systems that advance the interests of our democracy and our communities as a, you know, as a real infrastructure, like we think about water systems and roadways and bridges. Um, it's an infrastructure that is right now owned and operated exclusively by private companies, and you can't build the public sector on private servers, um, as I think has been said by uh, some, you know, some wise people um, who have really thought hard about what's going on today. And I'm a real advocate for carving out more space, um, you know, thinking about the internet increasingly as, you know, think about it as, a, as you know, maybe a park system. You know, that you need some spaces that aren't dominated and aren't dedicated to commercial advantage. There's a difference I've said between, you know, Times Square and Central Park in New York. And we understand we can see those differences. And the web right now is all Times Square, no Central Park. Um, and yeah. I think you know, there's no reason we can't have more space like that. Um, it just, that's a policy issue increasingly on how we get there. And I think we're in the policy phase right now, which is pretty much, you know, how do we bring Mark Zuckerberg to DC every couple of months or some proxy to you know, scold him for not doing enough? But that's not going to solve the, you know, that's not going to carve out more space on the web for something new. That's just sort of a, you know, screaming I, I feel like that's that's not that's not really policy anymore. That's just indulgent. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's just screaming at Times Square saying, turn yeah. off the lights. <laughs> this is rage against turn off these lights. Exactly. Damn you. So, so I want to I want to go back to kind of um, your role as a technologist and a product leader in the nonprofit sector. I mean, what have been some of the challenges that you faced trying to advance volunteer matches work, um, attract talent, get resources? Like, what are what are some of the challenges that you faced along the way, and how have you navigated through some of those challenges, and what have you learned yeah. uh, along the way? So I'll start with the positive and then, you know, the obviously just, you know, heap on all the challenges. The positive is I, there's been no greater honor than working with people on something that not only I care about passionately, an issue that I care about, a purpose I care about, but joining with other people who have a shared commitment to that purpose. Um, I worked in advertising long enough and, you know, the only real job I ever had other than selling skis at the mall uh, was um, as a advertising, you know, a young advertising exec at Leo Burnett, uh, right before the internet. And I loved advertising. I mean, it's just, I just, 
the power of an idea to shape our behavior, I think is amazing. The problem with an ad agency though, is you're, you're using all of that power and creativity aimed at you know, some you know, product that you may or may not care as passionately about. You know, for me, it was like, I worked on the Pillsbury account. I've got nothing against muffins or you know, any of those like things that you put in the oven and they bake up. Um, they're great, but it's like, is my, as my life's work, you know, to put all this power of creativity to, you know, just moving more Pillsbury grand muffins in the Midwest, you know, during the holiday season is like, ah, I just couldn't do, I couldn't do it literally. And I had, you know, I had that nervous breakdown really. I like, I like to say I had my midlife crisis, you know, in my twenties <laughs> and just got that out of the way. Cause I was like, you know, and it was one thing muffins and, you know, and beer and, you know, cars. And we were trying to sell Oldsmobiles for crying out loud at Leo Burnett. And I, I worked on the Oldsmobile account and I was like, I had an Oldsmobile in the family growing up. And I was like, I think those things are like, it's time for them to go. <laughs> Their time has passed. Um, I mean, it's in the name, right? We're old. You're not going to get, you're not going to get a new, like it's, uh, it's unfixable. So working with some on something, you know, volunteer match has been, you know, the application of technology to bringing good people together to amplify volunteering and generosity, like amazing, so much better than muffins. And I'm sure, you know, I know that's part of the bond of this community. It's people who are, you know, care passionately about some issue and are, you know, using technology to advance that cause. Love it. And you, you get some amazing people who are willing to work um, on projects like that. We've had so many great people on the team along the way. Um, that said, what's the challenge? The challenge increasingly, like in a world that's dominated by a handful of big companies, um, it's harder and harder to, you know, live that spirit of the early days of the web of independence and grow something big enough and, you know, operating at scale uh, that can really work and not just a little, you know, a niche podcast or a website um, that is, you know, you know, it's not infrastructure, it's not really providing you know the nonprofit sector with better access to the social capital that they need like in our instance of volunteer match so it's hard to keep keep up with the internet joneses who are spending hundreds of millions of dollars um, and co-opting everything and i'm increasingly i'm feeling like without some more significant policy interventions that's only going to get you know that, that's a yeah. that's a thorny subject it's not it's not easy to believe that um, you know the nonprofit sector will flourish without some greater investments um, and um, you know a leveling of the playing field. Um, so those are some of the so those are some of the big things. And then just from a pure technology point of view, um, it's it's you know I think one of the big things that we still struggle with and really haven't solved is that volunteer match came of age um, in the kind of the a world where Google was the front door to the internet. Everything came through, you know, like everything, there was a time, it's hard for people to even remember, but like, if you wanted information, you started on Google, you know, maybe you would go to Yahoo for a while until Google just ate Yahoo's lunch. Um, and then there was, you know, some old people who got lost in AOL for a while, but basically that all went away and it was like, Google was it. Um, and now, you know, 50% of all internet traffic is coming through a social platform, a social network. So the strategies for being good at SEO are in no way, uh, you, know, can, you know, the same as being good at social media. Um, and Volunteer Match is not strong in the social media world. And the consequence of that from a public policy or from our own mission point of view is that a lot of young people like my kids, you know, my daughter, like 
she, I don't think I've ever seen her use Google for anything. If she can't look it up on Siri or, you know, it doesn't show up on her Instagram feed, she doesn't need, like, it might as well just be invisible to her. That's an entirely different, you know, environment and ecosystem to operate in. And it's a real challenge for, you know, any organization to keep up with that, let alone a nonprofit organization that doesn't have an R&D team that is, you know, 30 people deep working on what's coming next. Volunteer Master has been interesting because it, it kind of started as a web product in a way, right? A website where people could both kind of go and post and, and find volunteer opportunities. And now is much more of an infrastructure organization that's trying to um, provide that information to many websites and many applications and many places where that information would be valuable. Um, can you talk some about, you know, you've talked some about what motivated that shift. What have you been learning as you've been making that shift as an organization? I love ambiguity and new problems and solving things that haven't been solved before. And I've learned that that is not true of everybody else in the world. And that if you've been doing SaaS product development for a decade, ending up in an, you know, at an organization that needs to build services that somebody else is using to build the front end um, is a crazy upside down world that can be very disorienting. And navigating through that has not been easy. So that, you know, we have a, you know, we have a, all of our history of building like, you know, all of the UI testing, all of the tricks of how you build better user interfaces, you know, have grown, you know, are, are much more widely understood today uh, than, you know, certainly they were a decade ago. And, and our team's got really good at it, right? Like, well, you know, if we're going to build some new feature, you need to understand what the user experience, what the UX and the UI is going to be. Um, and, you know, you build it. But as we are sunsetting our Your Match, product, like our corporate services product, the strategy was don't spend any more time and money building out that product, build out the API infrastructure that will allow our core content, our volunteer opportunities to be pulled into, you know, just take for an example, a Benevity platform. And then, you know, in, for the, and then have those users be able to, um, you know, navigate and find the information and content they need where we're no longer controlling the UI. Where we're providing the plumbing, as it were, so that you know Benevity can you know build the user interfaces that align with their own um, you know needs and you know service to the clients. That's really been disorienting. Like, and how you do that well um, is is hard because it's 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 just such a habit to like you know we'll we just got to fix this and, and like instead of creating a, you know, a developer's toolkit that would allow somebody else to fix it. So the difference between doing it yourself and collaboration, it turns out is, you know, <laughs> even, even harder than it sounds. Um, and we're still learning those ropes. And, you know, we get stuck now with what do you do when your partner um, is building a bad UI? Mm. Tell them to go to hell. Like, yeah, well, let's do it. Let's show you how to do it better. Like, that's not a solution, right? So you have to have a relationship with your developers and your partners that allows you to have, you know, open channels of communication. And increasingly, our job is to inspire and educate and, you know, and teach them, uh, you know, how to build better user interfaces, all without, you know, without losing our patience or our will to be partnered with them when they think there's something else more important, right, than our work. Like, that's a, it's a tough, it's a 
it's it's a real art, I think, much more than a, you know than a, a science to build those relationships. And maybe that's maybe you know maybe that's part of the future of product. It's always been such an art of just pushing the pixels around and having these big massive systems where you can see that you know all of the feedback and tweak and do A/B testing. It's an entirely different thing to be building a service that you need you know another partner, a bunch of competing partners to adopt and use um, in a, you know, and be competing for their time and attention when they've got a bunch of other fires on their end. That's, you know, that's kind of where we are right now. Um, and I think it's a good, I'm glad we're in that place because I think one of the other things that's inspired internally, which is like such a long time coming, but Volunteer Match is increasingly committed to making all of its code open and being an open source institution itself so that we can you know, expand, extend our ability to collaborate not only with our partners, but other interested volunteers to build cooler things. And in that, you know, in that middle phase of just building corporate products, our corporate partners prevented us you know, legally from having anybody who didn't have a background check and wasn't an employee of the company um, and you know, um, couldn't, couldn't be you know, you know, extradited from some foreign company into the United States to, you know, to stand um, you know, should there be any incident that, you know, they wouldn't, they wanted to be able to prosecute these people and, you know, sue them. Like that really got in the way of, you know, of building a community um, outside the boundaries of our employee base to really work on our core technology products and services. So that's been a big pivot and thinking about APIs as a product, even that is, you know, the typical product manager is like, no, you lost me. Where, where's the AB testing? <laughs> Yeah, no, I think it's it's so so right on. Of, it's this real shift from um, like one person, one team, one organization driving a product vision to really collaborating as an ecosystem and trying to make everyone better um, at, at providing these volunteer opportunities. And then they're also trying to collaborate with people that are trying to make giving easier and, and matching and, and all kinds of other things, right? It, it really, there is this, I think, then this shift to... Um, a much more collaborative environment, which right. in some ways is great, but it definitely does also um, shift the the way we influence and get things yes. done. I think yeah. as, a, as a technology sector. Well, and I think you know, I'm sure folks in the audience have noticed this. The irony that that is what you know was the original spark for the internet is not yeah. lost on me. Uh, you know, so you know what comes around goes around, and now you know all of this this period of consolidation. Um, I think will be challenged um, yet again by, you know, by the countervailing spirit of collaboration and openness and the sector's capacity um, to benefit from that in ways that they haven't always benefited from the commercialization of technology um, means there's something real at stake. You know, I think our communities and our democracy and, you know, the technologies we'll be able to use in the future, you know, that's all going to be defined right now um, by smart and talented people who understand this, that waiting around for Facebook to, to solve these things is, you know, is a, is a, is a, you know, an optional strategy that I'm electing not to take. So one of the, we have a question, and, and if people do have questions, feel free to chat them in. We have a few more minutes. Um, we have a question around like moving from, we're moving towards, sorry, this open source uh, perspective. How is that shifting and changing your business models, uh, you know, uh, yeah, it, it, yeah. Talking about in the question they're, they're raising from a subscription to something else, but yeah. um, the subscription today is really around the data increasingly, right? And the API access. So how is it shifting some of your business models? 
So, I mean, fortunately, um, maybe not fortunately, the, the ability to go open source kind of is a corollary to having shifted our core business model from selling a technology product, a SaaS solution as our core value to being a, you know, thinking of ourselves as a content player. And we're, you know, what we're selling, the, the analogy that's always helped me is I feel like we're more like Netflix today than, than we are, um, you know, Salesforce. You know, Salesforce is selling, you know, a technology, you know, a product that has lots of features and functionality. Volunteer Match, you know, at its best is a, um, a set, a community of users who Volunteer Match has pulled together and they're exchanging. It's a marketplace, two-sided marketplace, those who need volunteers and those who don't. And so our API tools allows us to make our, you know, the opportunities um, um, allows other people to join the community and participate in that marketplace without having to use our technology products. Mm -hmm. Because our business model now is about the access to the network and not the, hey, do you want the reporting module and the, you know, SSO? Do you want, do you want SSO and reporting? Um, well, that's going to cost you $12,000 extra, right? It's not, it's not a feature-based business yeah. model. Um, our core value proposition is no longer our code. Our core yeah. value proposition is how easily can people incorporate access to this network into their tools, technologies, and platforms. Um, and that's great. And so I, our business model is, you know, the subscription model is definitely well aligned um, with an open source ecosystem. So it's, I think open source used to mean we didn't care about money. You know, back in the day, the glorious days, it meant you were just above money and you were just doing things. And, and open source has, you know, evolved quite a bit. And now it's really more a strategy for greater and more scalable collaboration. And you still have to have a business model behind it. And if your business model requires you to sell in your, you know, if, you're, if your technology is proprietary and that's really what you're selling, um, I'm certain that open source will not be a good solution for your organization if, you know, advancing your income streams is in any way important to your future. Yeah, um, no, I think you're, you're absolutely right. Open source is about creating value in some other way than through your code and through your features. It's, right, it's right. that's not our competitive right. advantage anymore. Um, and, and, you know, increasingly less so. It's, it's, it's almost the exact opposite in, in that if we had open source code, the, the thinking is that it would make it easier for a Benevity or a CyberGrants or a Salesforce to, you know, for us to be able to build a platform partnership with those types of folks. Um, and, and there would be code available for them to do some of the hardest things um, related to a successful integration. You know, we're, we're working on, uh, you know, we're going we're gonna to do a, um, um, we were, we were working with the Gates Foundation on, a, on the possibility of building a, you know, a lightweight um, machine learning algorithm that will allow, um, you know, for better matching between interested volunteers and opportunities that, you know, might be relevant to them. You're kind of the recommendation engine. Um, that if we build that, you know, you could say, oh, that's an extra $5,000 to Benevity and wait around to get the $5,000. Or you say, no, that's part of our API partnership package. And, you know, now you can plug that in, plug your own data into it. And the strategy there is scale and impact, not an extra five grand for some new you know, feature set. I want to give a huge thank you to Greg Baldwin for joining me for that event, that Good Tech Fest event. Uh, be sure to check out goodtechfest.com. We have another event coming up on data security and ethics uh, in the next few weeks. And of course, our big festival in May.
but huge thank you to Greg. Please be sure to join and subscribe uh, to the Good Tech Fest podcast. And next week, I'll be sitting down with Chantal Forster, uh, the executive director of the Technology Affinity Group.